Good morning. We've got all kinds of things for you today. Um, to start off with, though, I, a couple of, of um, a serious announcements. One is I know that you just finished your PID exam. Um, <laughs> congratulations. Um, because you do have the possibility of getting some points back, I believe you were told not to discuss the exam with other members of the class. And I think some of that's already happening. So um, do not be discussing the exam with someone else if um, that was indeed the instructions that you were supposed to follow. So that's the serious announcement. The next serious announcement is, um, if we would, we need a moment of silence for Dr. House. <laughs> Somebody very maliciously put this up here on the podium. For those of you who don't know, um, Oregon State beat USC last night in football. So, so it is a, a period of mourning for him. Something else you should, you should know about Dr. House, um, when he was at USC, he was runner-up for Mr. USC. Um, all right. Um, other announcements. Make sure that you check ICON. There's some announcements on ICON specifically. Um, Dr. Brown is lecturing on chest pain next Friday, and he has some reading that he would like you to do ahead of time. Not that you're going to be preparing for an exam or anything like that, but he does have some reading he'd like you to do. Also, we placed handout materials for Dr. Iverson's lecture on Monday um, in, your, in your mailboxes. There's also uh, lecture materials for Dr. Takas's lecture um, it takes place in November, and there's also a supplemental material for, doc, um, for Gina Glass's lecture on alcohol um, misuse. It also takes place on Monday, so all that material is in your mailbox. Beginning Monday is focused history for some of you. Um, do check your schedules to see when you might have focused history. Not all of you have it on Monday, so do check that out. Um, details on focused history can be found in your syllabus, also on ICON. Specifically, we give you which three possible scenarios it might be. So you, rather than studying all possible chief complaints that could be there, we've narrowed it down for you. So you might want to take a look at that. Um, focus history, the uh, simulated patients will come in and they will present a chief complaint. You have 30 minutes to um, focus history and a physical exam that relates to that presenting illness. Okay. And then there's 10 minutes of feedback. Make sure that when you come um, that you have your ID with you because you will need your ID number on the back of it for taping purposes because it's all um, individualized now. So any questions about focus history? Yep. So one of you will be doing the exam, the other one will be watching and taping and doing a peer review. So that will be 45 minutes and the next one starts at the following hour. So one of you will start at 2.30 and the other one will watch for that hour. The next one starts at 3.30 and your partner watches. So basically you'll, you'll be done about 4.30. Yeah. Everything is listed until 5.30 because some of, your, some of your clinical experiences do go until 5.30. So we're getting out a little bit early. Okay, trivia. The University of Iowa mascot, was it always Herky? 
No, why would I throw this out if it wasn't always Herky? Jeez, you know? One time it was a black bear named Birch. 1908 to 1909, it was a black bear named Birch. Birch drowned in the Iowa River in 1910. Um, so, uh, so Birch was gone. Um, Herky arrived in 1948. The actual character Herky arrived in 1959, but only lasted for that fall season um, because he did inappropriate behavior. He, for example, he pulled a tail off the Northwestern mascot. Um, but then returned uh, again for good in 1962. So there's your trivia for the day. Happy homecoming. <laughs> you got to have it pretty damn ready. Can you all hear me okay? Okay. Um, so I'm Chris Arpey from Dermatology. Um, I think maybe I met you all briefly last year when I, I did a an interview demo for uh, PPD, if you remember that back, back probably about a year ago for FCP1. Um, I do a lot of skin cancer surgery and reconstruction and work with a lot of the other services at, over at UIHC uh, trying to help patients deal with, deal with skin cancer. So this is a real image intensive uh, talk. It's pretty um, low key in the sense that there's not a lot of technical scientific information. There's a little bit of epidemiology. There's a little bit of stuff on histology and everything that you need to know is in the handout and I understand I'll try to use the mouse that's here so that the mouse shows up on the note-taking service and we worked hard to get the pictures to be not identifiable. I worry once something's copied. I'm not so much worried about the copyright for me. It's not sort of a you know high-tech patentable thing but just to protect patients identities we've cropped the photos but I still think that from a, um, a diagnostic standpoint or differential diagnostic standpoint those images should be useful to you and I like when I get, I think this is the fifth year I've given this talk. It's great to catch you all as M2s because before you know it, really, you'll be on wards and in clinical situations for the rest of your lives, and that's not all that far away. I mean, it's six, seven months away. So if this helps get you thinking about patients and looking at their skin rather than past it when you're laying stethoscopes on people or moving limbs around, doing a rheumatologic or orthopedic exam, knowing full well that the vast majority of you won't be dermatologists, if I sensitize you to thinking about looking at people's skin and lesions on their skin and hopefully have accomplished something uh, um, as you look toward your clinical years. One quick bit of trivia that you might not know, um, depends on, I suppose, what learning community that you're in, but one of the things that Dr. House and, and, and Jeff Emmerich and I share is that we're all flockers, so I've been over at Flocks lately, but before Dr. Pardini was over there, uh, I was the learning community director and I've had some other responsibilities come up uh, over in my own department and in other areas that if limited my time there, but for any of you who are flockers, I am I'm a member of the flocks learning community as these two folks are. So you're still in flocks, right? Okay. So without without further ado, we got if the if the lights aren't dim enough, at the risk of putting you asleep, which if it happens I'm not offended, we may dim them some more because a lot of times um, the pictures are hard to see for, from in here. So Jeff, we can dim it a little bit more, right? Okay. If you fall asleep, you fall asleep. So at least it's before noon, although it never precluded me from dozing off in certain talks about 25 years ago when I was in M2. But hopefully it, the pictures will be rapid-paced enough to keep you awake and you won't get, there won't be a strobe light effect and sort of cause you to seize up or something. So basal cell carcinomas, we're going to talk about the three major kinds of skin cancers. 
we put the red herrings in there and the odd ducks, we could probably come up with 50 types of cancer that affect the skin, but 99% of them are the three that we're going to talk about today. And this is the commonest one. Whoops. Uh, basal cell skin cancer, there's about a million cases a year. It's probably a little over a million cases a year now. There's a slight male preponderance of people that get basal cell skin cancer, and about 40 to 50% of people that get one will get another one in their lifetime. So it's a very common ailment. You will see a lot of them in your patients. It's the most common form of any cancer, thyroid, you know, all those sorts of things. There's more ca cases of basal cell skin cancer than any cancer. Uh, they are slowly growing, they're locally destructive, and they rarely metastasize. Uh, I think we, I just heard of one, the fourth case I've heard of in my career we just had in the clinic um, a couple of weeks ago. I didn't see that patient. One of my colleagues did. So it's pretty uncommon. I mean, I've seen thousands of patients over the last 20 years with skin cancer, and to have only the fourth one spells out how uncommonly this spreads distantly. Predisposing factors are fair skin because of the lack of uh, melanin as a, as a sink for ultraviolet radiation and to protect DNA damage. That's the number one risk factor. Ultraviolet radiation exposure, so people that are, have outdoor work or outdoor hobbies and are out in the sun a lot, that's number two. People that have had ionizing radiation, you know, if they've had Hodgkin's disease and they got mantle irradiation or they had radiation for breast cancer and survived that and maybe 15, 20 years later have an increased risk, all of the skin cancers, you know, ionizing radiation is, is a a risk factor for them getting subsequent skin cancers, including basal cell skin cancer. And then some of the inherited diseases that are, uh, that are uncommon. Uh, we, as part of syndromes, you'll see basal cell carcinoma sometimes, but that's much less common as, as is the case with any kind of syndromes are less common sorts of things, period. The generic type of basal cell skin cancer, you know, 99 out of 100 times, it's going to be caused by one of the top three things. And, of course, advancing age. People have poor... Uh, tumor surveillance as they get older and less tumor immunity, cell-mediated immunity that kills their tumors off. They tend to just have collected more hits over time. And so this is, like all cancers, uh, there's increasing incidence with age. So there's different types. And uh, I, I've listed the types here. And, and really, a picture is worth a thousand words. But the nodulo-ulcerative kind is, means, uh, you know, the papule, the bump that rises up, maybe gets necrotic in the center because it outgrows its blood supply and then has a little dell or a little crater in the middle, and I'll show you some examples of that. Superficial ones that oftentimes mimic a rash. They can look like eczema or contact dermatitis or something else, so they tend to be flat and shiny and pink. Uh, and then the infiltrative or sclerosing kind are more scar-like. The patient that tells you that, you know, you see a lesion on them, you assume it's a scar, it seems like it's kind of firm, uh, it doesn't really bleed much, and the patient can't remember an injury there, then it needs to heighten your suspicion that, you know, maybe it really isn't a scar from cutting themselves on you know, the fence post or whatever. Uh, and then there's some that are pigmented, and, and a lot of times when they're pigmented, they will fool you. You will think maybe they're a melanoma or some other kind of benign thing, but basal cell skin cancers can have pigment in them, and I'm going to show you some examples. And sometimes they can appear cystic, especially if they're a little bit more translucent. Sometimes basal cell carcinomas are shiny, um, and uh, if they're papular, papular or raised and shiny, they can almost look like a cyst, and sometimes there can be... Uh, areas of degeneration um, within the tumor histopathologically that make them look pseudocystic. Um, and so that's a less common subtype, but those are the five main kinds. And the histopathologically, you guys are doing PATH right now too, right? Aren't you doing PATH this year? Yeah. So you'll go in Dr. Stone or Dr. Lure or Dr. Swick will certainly review skin cancer histopathology, so I don't want to dwell on that. 
for this particular talk. It's a more clinically oriented talk, but those are the main kinds. These are the main treatment approaches. Uh, it's kind of a little bit of a laundry list here. A lot of times, just like it is for a lot of cancers, just excisional surgery to remove them is, is an approach to take. Destructive approaches like scraping and cauterizing, which is number two. Cryosurgery, which is freezing with liquid nitrogen spray. There's topical chemotherapeutic agents that work for the less aggressive types in less high-risk locations. And then a lot of what I do is number five here, Mohs micrographic surgery, which is in high-risk locations or where the tumors are recurrent or they're aggressive or where tissue sparing is important. We remove the tissue in thin layers, use horizontal frozen sections and make a careful map and we check uh, with, with those frozen sections under the microscope while the patient waits and if the cancer is gone, then we repair it or refer to somebody else to repair it. And if it's not gone, then we take another stage and we only go to the place according to the patient in the map where there's residual tumor instead of taking the whole thing. And so we do about a thousand of those a year between here and the VA and, you know, double that of the, of the other sorts of things in, in our clinic. Uh, so most surgery isn't used for every skin cancer, uh, but it can be used for the higher risk ones and the ones in tough locations like nose, lips, ears, and eyes, and things like that, eyelids. Radiation therapy is sometimes used as primary therapy. It's, it's successful for this. Uh, it also can be used as, as an adjuvant for therapy depending on this, the situation, and it can be used in, for the other cancers too. And then there's this thing called photodynamic therapy. Um, if you remember back to your porphyrins, you guys all remember that from last year from biochemistry? It's bringing some, some smiles to some people's faces. Uh, you can actually, some of those, those of porphyrin rings are photosensitizing, delta-amenolevulinic acid, some of those have been taken advantage of um, pharmacologically, and actually you can rub it onto the skin or inject it, and it's preferentially taken up into rapidly producing cells, including tumor cells, and then you shine light on it, and it causes the tumor to necrose. So just a, it's my little, my basic science connection for you today. And, and uh, is Ruby still teaching biochem? Okay, so that's for Ruby, hats off to you when I say that. Think about photodynamic therapy. So this is pretty obvious. This is a young person. Uh, you can, if this person walked into your clinic, you're probably not going to miss this. You're probably not going to mistake it for a pimple. You know, it's this, it's a, uh, you know, I should use the mouse here. It's a big, it's a big lesion. Uh, see, will this, well, is this going to move, Jeff? See if I, uh, there we go. Now I got it to work. Okay, I had to take it off the saddle. So you can see there's a little dell in the center, this little crater. And you can see this is some of the hallmark features. And what I want to start to get you to think about here as you look through this tumor compared to squamous cell skin cancer is that basal cell skin cancers, they tend to be shinier. They tend not to make a lot of keratin. And if you think about what does the term basal cell carcinoma mean, and think back to your normal histology, it's from, it arises from the basal cells of the epidermis. And what basal cells do is they make the squamous cells above them. They don't make keratin. Basal cells give rise to squamous cells. Squamous cells give rise to the cornified layer, right? Keratinized layer. So these tend not to be as verrucoid. They don't make as much, they don't flake as much. And it doesn't mean that they can't do it, but they typically don't. So these tend to be shinier, they're more translucent, have a pearly look to them, almost as like dripped candle wax, white candle wax can look on the skin. Okay. And they sometimes have teal injectasia in them, and this one does. Okay. Now, not everything that has teal injectasia is a basal cell, but these are all sort of the warning signs. And the dell in the middle is where the tumor's outgrown its blood supply, and it gets necrotic, and then it fibrosis down. 
So that's a classic nodule ulcerative basal cell. And it's a relatively young person who's fair-skinned and freckled. So this should be no surprise. This one's a little bit more subtle. Okay? And I've done this in the past. It's hard, it's hard for you guys to, you know, if, you all, if all 80 of you had a laser pointer, I'd say point to the tumor. But this one's actually, I don't know if you can see it, it's right here. It's very small. It'd be a lot easier, I think, to overlook that. It's not quite as shiny. There's not, it doesn't hit you, hit you in the face like the other one does. And you say, wow, there's a big goober on that lady's cheek, and she's not going to miss it. Nobody else's. Something like that, which is a little bit shiny, doesn't make a lot of crust. Somebody might think it's just a regular old mole or a little whitehead or something like that, or even a small scar. But you know, you, it, it does, when you look at it closely, it does stand out in the crowd. And you should ask a patient, how long has that been there? And most People don't get new moles or new nevi past the age of 30. doesn't mean it's impossible, but for someone to acquire something new like this at age 70, you should take notice of it or certainly query the patient about it because it, it, it is different. Um, and at the end of this talk, I'm going to show you some benign things, and it may do more to confuse you than to reinforce things, but it's hard to teach a dermatology in, for, in 45 minutes. What I want you to do is pay attention to things that shouldn't be there. So a lot of dermatology... Okay, in a very simplified manner, although we have textbooks of 2,500 to 3,000 pages of all the weird dermatoses out there, what dermatology boils down to for the non-dermatologist is where's Waldo? You know what I mean? You're looking in the book and say, you know, that doesn't fit there. So this is kind of one of those where's Waldo moments. You know what I mean? So, you know, that doesn't belong there. What, it's, it's, it, you know, the rest of her skin is pretty pristine. Why is that there? So if you're the ENT person looking in her nose or you're a, a generalist, you know, doing an oropharyngeal exam, looking in the mouth, what's the tongue look like? You know, you're looking the person right in the face. Don't overlook something like that. Okay. And now this one is, you know, so we're kind of going from the, you know, the, the overt to the subtle back to the sort of wow hits you over the head thing. And this lady has had this for 10 years. Okay, and she, it was misdiagnosed as being a fungal infection. She works around cattle, and somebody thought that this was ringworm, you know, just tinea, uh, fungus, and, but never scraped it, didn't do a biopsy. And, you know, topical uh, Lotrimin or Monistat or something like that, I have to remember to use the mouse, isn't going to work for something like this. So the rule of thumb here is, too, you guys are going to be in the clinical arena very soon. You're starting to get in there now. If, it, if, you, if you make a therapeutic intervention and it doesn't work, then you need to rethink the diagnosis. I mean, you would, you, you would assume that, that that's straightforward, but you would be surprised. Either the patient keeps trying things or sometimes a, the unwary clinician keeps trying things that don't work and they don't reestablish a differential diagnosis. So if you think this is fungus, scrape it and look for it. it you know, and if you don't find it and you're sort of puzzled or you try a therapeutic intervention, then maybe you should biopsy this. Now, this is red and it defies what I just told you three minutes ago, which is this scales a little bit, right? So not every basal cell carcinoma fails to make scales. Some of them do. But the squamous cell carcinomas that I'm going to show you in 17 or 18 minutes, they scale more. Okay? They tend to flake more. They're more heaped up. They're more exophytic, typically. All right? So this is a superficial basal cell, and it's a little bit crusted, probably because it's been there for a long time. And now we're getting some superficial necrosis in addition to just that, that dell, that little crater that was made in that first lady that I showed you. This is even more subtle in some ways because this lady has one of those scar type or morpheiform or infiltrative tumors. That particular subtype of basal cell carcinoma makes more stroma. There's more fibroplasia there. And it's unclear why a lady like this would make that sort of a tumor, whereas the elderly lady that I showed you with the left upper lip made that tiny little bump. 
They're both basal cell carcinomas. If you look at the cancer-producing cells, they're derived from the basal cells of the epidermis, and they become neoplastic and all of the things that you look at carcinogenesis, they're immortal, all of those sorts of things, they grow too quickly. But why this person makes too much stroma, and this feels more like a scar, and the other lady doesn't, isn't known yet. So, but they're all basal cell skin cancers. And one of the tough things about this is for the uninitiated or you, nearly newly minted clinicians, is the first several cases that I've shown you, they all look different. So where's the commonality? And that's one of the difficult things about dermatology. But if you look carefully at this lady, you say, well, you know, why does she have this thing on her lip? It's probably not a cold sore. It's sort of white. It looks sort of firm. Did she injure this thing? Did she just she cut herself going through a windshield in a car accident? Like, why does that look like that? You know, and you should ask somebody like this. A lot of times these won't hurt. Most skin cancers don't. Sometimes if they demonstrate perineural invasion, which this particular subtype of tumor does and squamous cell carcinoma does, tumor can get around the perineurium, then they can cause discomfort or knock a nerve out and you can get nerve paralysis. I'm going to show you a picture of somebody like that in a minute. But a lot of times they're otherwise asymptomatic. So it behooves you to, to, to be careful, do the Where's Waldo thing, point things out to patients, ask them. How long has it been here? How did you do that? Does your lip hurt? Does, how, you know, when you feel it, it feels firm. Why does it feel that way? What's the reason for that? Okay, and here's a gentleman with a bunch of basal cell skin cancer. So you've got one here. If you can see this, it's more like the superficial kind. This, is, this one's heaped up here, and it's a little eroded here. It's made a little ulcer. And there's two here, one in the nasal sill and one in the corner of his nose. This is the most subtle one, I think, of this group. And this one, these, because they're ulcerated, are a little bit more obvious. And then this one, which is, this is kind of very classic. It hasn't ulcerated yet, but it's got that very, very shiny, pearly, candle wax sort of look, but doesn't have as much telangiectasia as the ones that I showed you some of the ones that I showed you earlier. There's a little less erythema here. Okay? But I think you could see if you look at the, this, you know, globally at his nose, you could say, well, there's something there. Okay? You got, would you have picked that up? Yeah? You'd have seen that? Okay, good. And then there's this little scaly area here on this gentleman's ear that doesn't look like a whole lot. It looks just like a little bit of dry skin. But it, it, the value of you know, the Mohs procedure that I talked about doing in these high-risk locations is shown by the size of the defect where this really tracks along the cartilage, it goes along the perichondrium because it's a firm surface and it's easier for this to skate along the cartilage and sometimes it does that along the bone or the calvarium rather than become exophytic, it's more flat. So in these locations there can be a lot of subclinical extension and that's why although these don't metastasize, you should encourage patients to, you know, to, to check their skin when you're telling people, get your cholesterol checked and you're checking their blood pressure, wear your seat belt, wear your sunscreen, all that health maintenance stuff. Do a self-breast exam, do a testicular exam, look at your skin. It's so easy to do. Get a mirror out just once a month when they're doing all their other health maintenance things. You know, you run your antivirus on your computer, you know, all the you know, people do all kinds of maintenance things and then they neglect their health. So it's not hard to get someone to look at their skin if you just remind them to do it, uh, in, including looking behind their ears. So, you know, it tells you, you know, you're going to the doctor, change your underwear, wash behind your ears, all that sort of stuff, you know. Uh, so, you know, you've got to look in some of these concealed areas. It's really easy in a person like this to, you know, with the, oh, it's the temple of their glasses or it's behind there. You know, if people don't necessarily bend people's ears back, look at the soles of their feet. You really have to look at their skin. And this is a guy who had renal cell carcinoma and wasn't thought to be able to survive that, but did. And he'd had a basal cell skin cancer in here that they just did palliative treatment for with radiation, trying to temporize, even though it was in this high-risk uh, 
what's so-called embryonic fusion plane where the ear kind of connects to the scalp and in the nooks and crannies along the nose and eye sockets and behind ears, these tumors can really dive. And after he survived his renal cell carcinoma, the tumor, you know, this tumor ulcerated and it came back. And everywhere where you see the Sharpie, I call that, we've been talking about football earlier, so any of you who know Terrell Owens with his Sharpie marker. So this is the positive Sharpie marker sign. These are not highly melanotic, melanocytic uh, uh, marks here. That's, that is Sharpie marker, true confessions. But at each of the five locations here, it all showed basal cell skin cancer. And, you know, this is, is how broad this defect was and as far as we could go because there's the sternomastoid tendon. So any of you who liked anatomy as M1s, I don't know if you all liked anatomy class and maybe haven't had much of that lately because it's, you know, a year ago now. But that's, that's the, you know, the mastoid process and the insertion of the mastoid tendon. It's at this point that our ear, nose, and throat neurosurgical colleagues would take this to the next step and do a mastoidectomy and take this muscle out. And this went down to the base of his skull and he had to have cesium implants. And ultimately, he died of, he didn't die of direct extension, but he had a lot of health problems, and he certainly had paralysis of his facial nerve. So I show cases like this to sort of say, yeah, there's a little spot on the lip or that spot on that lady's arm, and if you just excise it or do whatever, she's fine. But if neglected, these can cause substantial morbidity. So, you know, it's, it's a sort of, ah, it's just skin cancer. If it's not a melanoma, nobody ever dies of that. Well, you can, and it can cause a lot of trouble. So this is the sort of thing where we end up talking to patients about you know, why, why they have to have something done, even if it doesn't hurt, even if it's been there for a while, whatever. Here's a guy with a very small one. This is one of those four people that I told you had aggressive behavior and actually died of metastatic disease. And if you look carefully here, you can see he's got more scleral show and he's got ptosis of his brow. So from the lesion that he has here, he has paralysis of his facial nerve. So the temporal branch of his facial nerve is knocked out by this tumor. It's a little bit hard to find in this dark sideburn and he's got a little bit of crust here and that little bit of shininess at the edge. This is another one of those very big defects and actually Dr. Thomas who used to direct this course helped care for this guy once he got um, metastatic basal cell carcinoma to his lungs. He just died last year or the year before. This picture is about 10 or 12 years old. And then this gentleman who's a trucker that neglected this tumor because uh, he's busy over the road trucker seeped up at the edge. It's deeply ulcerated and you know you end up with this kind of morbidity and we do about 100 eyelid surgeries a year. I'm doing four of them next Tuesday. So we take care of a lot of tumors on the eyelids and I work a lot with the oculoplastic surgeons. So you've got the bone is exposed here and the periorbital fat and the lacrimal system is gone here now. But at least he got to keep his eye. So, you know, I, I think it's just, you know, I think it's good to show you a variety of things and to get to sensitize you to, to look, to see what people have. This lady died of direct extension of her neglected basal cell carcinoma, which is CSF distending her eyelid here and this eroded into the calvarium. She was schizophrenic and afraid of doctors and kind of tucked away on a farm in northeast Iowa and didn't want to go out of her house for 20, 22 years and she died of this. Um, it's kind of a very sad case but you know we do see these are all Iowans, they're all patients that we've seen in our clinics here and this one's pigmented. You know get people to take their hearing aids out, remove their glasses, look underneath the you know the nose pieces of their glasses, look at the soles of their feet and under their underwear and, you know, you check the people, check them over, you know, if you do want to do it. Depends on your practice. I mean, if you're, you know, a family practitioner, pediatrician, any kind of primary care or obstetrician, you know, you look, at, look people over thoroughly. I understand some of you might be subspecialists in somebody else's realm, but, <coughs> you know, probably half of you are going to some kind of primary care, look in people's ear canals. If you look at this and you say, well, how does RP know that's not a melanoma? I, I don't. I mean, it's, it needs a biopsy. It shouldn't be there. It happens to be a basal cell carcinoma. It's big and dark and black and shouldn't be there. So the key thing from your standpoint is to pick it up, 
to make sure that you get a biopsy of this and find out what it is. This is one of those more pink scar-like ones. This is another infiltrative or morpheiform one. A lot of people will say, ah, oh, I, I caught it dock or it drained or I think it's a cyst or whatever. People will pass things off as lots of things. But, you know, this clearly stands out. shouldn't be there. Here's another little one on the eyelid. It's got that heaped-up brim. It's very subtle. There's lashes missing and it's ulcerated in the middle. Very typical basal cell. So now we're going to talk about squamous cell skin cancers. Second most common type of skin cancer. Questions about basal cells at this point? You guys doing okay? The picture show goes on here. Far fewer of these, but a steadily increasing incidence of squamous cell carcinomas. About 2 to 1 male preponderance, which is the gap is narrowing. And about 5 to 10% of these will metastasize, though ones on the lip and ear tend to metastasize more commonly. If they're larger size, a couple of centimeters, if they're poorly differentiated, if the patient is immunosuppressed because they have HIV or they've had cancer or they're an organ transplant recipient and their cell-mediated immunity and tumor immunity is suppressed by their cell sept, their prograft, their cyclosporin, their imuram, those patients are at higher risk for spread of these tumors. So the risks are higher. You're less apt to want to do destructive means to take care of these patients. You're much more apt to do something definitive or excisional where you've got microscopic proof that it's gone. And your workup has to be more extensive because these are the patients that can get adenopathy. They can get metastasis to the lung, to other places, to their parotids. So you really, it's incumbent on you to do a more thorough workup before you intervene with these folks. And the predisposing factors are a little bit more broad. Fair skin, UV radiation, and ionizing radiation are up there, and there's still some syndromes, but now we throw human papillomavirus into the mix. The same HPV, 6, 11, 16, 18, that, you know, Gardasil vaccine helps with cervical cancer. That same virus that can cause cervical cancer can cause skin cancer, okay? Whether it's condyloma, skin, you know, genital skin, or whether it's, it's skin cancers elsewhere, you can find HPV, especially in the immunocompromised patients. People with chronic sinus tracts, chronic draining osteomyelitis, or they're diabetic that doesn't heal, or the old burn scar is at higher risk for developing squamous cell carcinoma in it. Vitiligo, which is a condition where people can lose the pigment in their skin, no matter what the color of their skin is, are at higher risk because they lose even more of their melanin protection. And also arsenic, which used to not be tested for in, in people's wells. Our, Iowa has one of the highest well water arsenic contaminations in the country. And most people now get tested, but do you think in 1940, the eight-year-old kid growing up on a farm got their well water tested? They didn't. So I see a lot of 60 and 70, 80-year-old folks that have arsenical keratoses that, that have had trouble. I have a wonderful lady from central Illinois right now. She's in her 70s. She's just lost her fifth digit on one hand because of arsenical keratosis that degenerated into squamous cell carcinoma, and we're trying to save her other fingers by keeping ahead of the lesions that she has. So you say, arsenic, who does anybody get arsenic? Where do you get exposed to that? Uh, so these are some of the things that you should think about with regard to this tumor that are a little different than basal cell skin cancer. And there are some precursor lesions. I mentioned the arsenical keratosis. They look like little hard little warts. They're very scaly. They don't, look that, they don't have the little church spire or mossy appearance that the typical wart that probably half of you have had a you know, plantar wart or wart on your finger. I don't want you to run out of here and think every, you know, half the people in this room are going to get skin cancer from those. But, you know, I mentioned HPV and erythroplasia of karat, which is um, basically squamous cell carcinoma in situ of the glands penis, usually in uncircumcised folks. This epidermal dysplasia of erysiformis is a heritage condition that makes people sensitized to HPV types 5 and 8 in particular. 
Bowen's disease is a squamous cell carcinoma in situ. It's, more, it's exactly analogous to saying a person's got carcinoma in situ of the cervix and gets you know, colposcopy once in a while and surveillance biopsies and pap smears, but it doesn't always progress to cervical cancer, invasive cervical cancer, same way with this. So, and actinic keratoses are common. There's millions, tens of millions of people in the country that have these, and I'll show you some examples later at the end, that they're very, very early, even earlier squamous cell carcinoma in situ than Frank Bowen's disease. There's sort of dysplasia there and little scaly lesions on the skin, and they can turn into to, to skin cancers. So these are a little bit, they can be skin-colored plaques or nodules, little ra raised areas. They're usually a thicker scale and cross than most basal cells. They can become eroded and ulcerated, and you have to worry about nodes and chest X-ray in particular. Lungs and lymph nodes are the commonest places that regional nodes and, and, and pulmonary are the two places where this typically metastasizes first. Several different histopathologic types, and again, because I want to show you a lot of pictures, I don't want to dwell on this aspect of the talk. Just know that there's Broder's classification from well to poorly differentiated. And you can imagine poorly differentiated cells don't make their end product. You can't even tell sometimes that they're going to make keratin. You don't see the keratin. You have to do special stains. People are starting to put depths of invasion on these, much like they do with melanomas in the histopathology reports. Here, you know, excisions or Mohs surgery kind of creeps up on the list. The more destructive or topical things move lower on the list in your therapeutic ladder. Again, because of the chance of metastasis, and if these recur, then the person can die from this much more commonly than they can from basal cell carcinoma. So let's look at some pictures. I would think that you would look at this and not think that this was a sun-exposed skin. Of course, you know, and this, is, this is genital skin. It's a vulvar squamous cell carcinoma. It's sitting right here. It's probably HPV-related. Okay, so you can see this nodule here. Not a lot of scale here because it's, it's right at the cusp of being mucosal skin and a little ulceration in the middle. So there's the tumor. For you budding OB-GYNs or anybody in primary care, you're going to be looking at genital skin all the time. This is sitting right there. Often would be painless. Make sure you look. Okay. This gentleman here, how old do you think this person is? Any, any ideas? Just shout it out. How old is he? 60, 80? What else did I hear? So yeah, he looks at, he's 40. He's 40 because he got radiation for his acne when he was a teenager. And that's why his skin, now there's better drugs out there for acne, but the point is his skin looks like that of an 80-year-old. So this is a radiated skin. And there's that, see that heaped up nodule with the crust? The crust in the middle is the tip-off. And look, I'm not expecting you guys to go out there and say, oh, I can figure out the fine-tuning between the basal cell and the squamous cell because one's got you know, this much crust and the other one's ulcerated, there's going to be overlap. The most important thing here is to say, while this person's at high risk, there's a huge goober on his forehead and it needs a biopsy and he needs to be watched. That's the key thing here. But that's why this guy's skin looks so old. Or this gentleman that's an organ transplant patient who's at high risk and has had multiple skin cancers over the years and has this heaped up tumor that's got a lot more crust. So these tend to be much more exophytic and verrucoid. They tend to sprout. They look more cauliflower-ish. Squamous cells do, and they tend to be more friable. They break down more. The top, they're more top-heavy. Again, the cells that this tumor arises from are the ones above the basal cell, so they're more outward-bound, if you want to think of it that way. Okay, that person obviously needs an axillary node exam very carefully, and this one had a neck exam. You look at this, and it just looks like a wart there, doesn't it? And what this guy was, was treated with was, uh, was an, an oral antifungal because, again, he works around cattle, too, and people thought he had fungus here, and he was treated with an oral antifungal for a year without a culture or a biopsy, okay, and then ends up with this. 
you know, then he loses the, basically the sill of, you know, of his nose and the part of the calumella because it's squamous cell carcinoma. So, you know, the wart that just doesn't behave like the typical wart, you guys, the thing that's crustier and scalier that just doesn't respond to treatment, you know, the, the, the thing that doesn't look like the typical wart, you know, that's the, the sort of thing that you need to think about. You need to think about squamous cell carcinoma in a situation like this. And this is one of the eyelid. Again, the reason why this is whiter is because it makes more keratin and that keratin sucks up the tear film and it turns white. It's the same reason why when you are at the beach or in the tub or you know, shower for a long time and around your nails and stuff, it look, the skin looks really white or the skin in the bottom of your feet does because it just gets real hydrated. That's why this is as white as it is. Okay, but that's a squamous cell carcinoma on the eyelid. And this delightful lady who had a recurrence, you see the crust, she, you know, the crusting here, this whole thing, she had a skin graft, this is a split thickness skin graft. She actually had very, very good vision in this eye and had a big on-block resection here by ENT and neurosurgery, had a plate put in and lost most of this and had to have an exoneration of her eye. But she survived it and she actually did a very delightful lady from Northwest Iowa. was 88 years old at the time this picture was taken and she lived, lived through the procedure. She lived another four or five years and died of other things. But the, the main thing to show you here is how bad these can be they can recur, that they have the crust and the scale that's very common of squamous cell carcinoma, and that you can lose vital structures with a tumor like this if it's recurrent or neglected. This is a gentleman from Southeast Asia that chewed beetle nuts. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that part of the world, but that's a chemical carcinogen is very common over there. You can also see this in some parts of Central and South America. It's the same sorts of risks that you would see from pipe smokers. You can see the crust there in the nodule. It's a very high-risk location. It's incumbent on you to do a very good head and neck exam on this person or have an ENT colleague that's used to checking these people a lot check the person for you. Or this person that is a pipe smoker that had the, you know, the pipe in the corner of the mouth over here, and this involves the oral commissure. It's sort of, you say, well, I don't see the crust here. It sort of looks ulcerated, and it's pink, and it's large, and so how come it's not a basal cell carcinoma? Uncle. Okay, fine. I, you know, I can't promise you that that's what that is, but it's not supposed to be there, and it happens to be a squamous cell skin cancer, and it needs a biopsy. Okay? And this one's classic. It's a big crusted area on this guy's shoulder. No one's going to miss this. That's not subtle at all. You know, that thing's, that's like an, you know, an extra deltoid muscle hanging off there. It's, you know, so you're not going to miss that. But, you know, again, just to sort of reinforce the sort of hallmark features of these tumors and to give you a sense for the the, the sizes and the different locations that you can see them. And again, to look behind the ear, there's this big goober, big tumor here with a positive Sharpie sign, but there's actually a littler one down here. And again, a reminder to you, and you can see the tobacco stained fingernails here. So, you know, this gentleman's got two squamous cell carcinomas, the bigger one and the little one. And this one who's got four such lesions, three or four, one, two, three, and a little one here. And these little scaly areas in the background, okay, with the freckling, it shows indicates that he's got chronic sun exposure and there's a spot over here as well. So these are the actinic keratoses that I talked about that are precursor lesions or solar keratoses. They're basically squamous metaplasia. They're squamous atypia that isn't full thickness and doesn't travel down adnexy and isn't invasive into the dermis. So they don't count as squamous cell carcinomas. But just like any other in situ malignancy, anywhere where there's dysplasia, it's like a Barrett's esophagus. It's like cervical dysplasia. Any of those where there's, you know, low-level neoplasia that can, that if you get that second hit or some other promoter can turn into cancer, that's why you have to monitor these people. 
And this is another guy that grew up in Southern California and on the beaches. I don't think Dr. House is still here. Maybe he's around somewhere. But this guy is deeply ulcerated. It's got the telangiectasia. This could easily be a basal cell. The tip off that it might be a squamous cell is this little scaly protrusion here. And it ends up, this is a guy also in his 40s that just basically lived on the beach, is very fair skin, has hazel eyes, tough. And it goes right down to periosteum here. You're able to preserve that and you can skin graft that. Here's another crusted lesion inside a, guy, a person's ear. So get the hearing aids out, take the glasses off, look, look everywhere. And there's a little more subtle one on the nose, a little scaly one. So sometimes they start smaller, organ transplant patient. That, that's the ear that I showed you is this gentleman's ear. He's still alive. He just, we just took one off. This is from 10 years ago, but we just took another one off his arm that extended right down to his, the fascia of his forearm, and now he's having to have adjuvant radiation. And his hand, where there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of these. And a lot of times with these people, you say, well, what do you do except just cutting them off? Prophylactically, what you can do is to try to suppress the growth of these by giving a drug that causes cells to differentiate better. And those drugs are the retinoids, Accutane and Sorietane, Acetretin and Isotretinoin. There's the generic names for those things. Hopefully, you'll learn about them in farm this year a little bit. They're usually used for bad acne. They also cause cells to differentiate better, and it slows their growth. And so for these patients that can't be off their organ, trans, organ rejection medication or they won't die, we work in close concert with the transplant service and try to either adjust those meds down and then also institute those, those medications, not because these people have bad acne, because it slows the, the onset and the progression of these, at least to some extent. What I tell patients that have this is you never win, you play to draw. You never win with... Some patients you'll win with, and as you guys start your careers, no matter what you do, and it's... I only talk to you all once a year, and then you probably don't see me much in dermatology when they're over there. But I hope you have to bear in mind is even when you start your careers that there are some patients that you'll cure and that you'll, you'll definitely win. There's some patients where you lose and they don't survive or their quality of life is terrible. Many times you can win. But then there's, there's some patients where victory is a draw. And a lot of times with these patients, you know, you're just keeping these tumors at bay and not letting them get big, metastasize, ruin their quality of life because you'll never get rid of every single tumor. And so what I tell these patients is you play to draw, you can't play to win. And that's a victory for a lot of these patients. And I think that that's true in some other areas of medicine. And so without waxing philosophical uh, any longer, I'll go on to the next picture. This is one that's more in situ. It's sort of flatter. It's a little bit more sessile. It's pink and has a little bit of scale on it. And this is a lady that got radiation as a little kid for her, the hemangioma that she had here, the birthmark that grew, and they didn't really have good treatments for that back when she was little. And then it became a squamous cell carcinoma. And this is actually fairly easy to reconstruct, and she did very well. So it's not always sun exposure. It can be HPV. There's other, I'm trying to give you a sense, sort of the breadth of things that people get, you know, the risk factors for. And this lady with multiple squamous cell carcinomas who was an organ transplant patient and died of metastatic squamous cell carcinoma. So now we're going to finish with malignant melanoma. We've got about eight minutes. It should be enough to show you the pictures for melanoma and some differential diagnosis. Not as many of these, fortunately. Very rapidly increasing incidence. It's getting up to 1 to 60 or 1 to 70. Uh, you know, you look at a room like this, 150, 160 students in a class, two or three of you are apt to get a melanoma. Um, you know, it's not, not that low. And there's no gender predilection. The tumors are thicker and ulcerated, then you have to worry about metastasis. So this is the more, most feared of the three that I'm showing you today. The same sorts of risk factors apply. History of severe sunburns, kind of bigger moles, a mole that's bigger than a pencil eraser head, people that have lots of funny-looking moles, in addition to their fair skin and UV radiation. 
people that have large congenital nevi, those, those giant hairy moles that you sometimes see pictures of, you know, the ones that are two, three, four centimeters that probably, you know, ten of you have are not as big a risk. It's a little higher for those. We're talking about the big, big bathing trunk type ones. Those are at much higher risk for getting, developing melanomas in them. So the clinical appearance, you know, the, we talk about the ABCDEs, the asymmetry of a lesion, internal asymmetry, an irregular border, darker colors, although color variegation is important, slate blue and white and pinks. Sometimes they imply that there's regression or an immune response, and you have to worry about those. The diameter is usually bigger than five to six millimeters, but I've certainly seen there's always exceptions to everything in medicine. You can see two or three millimeter melanomas where they've suddenly changed their character. Half the mole looks different than the other in half of the three millimeter mole, or it's raised up, or it starts to itch, or it bleeds. Well, fine. Well, you, can, you don't want to say, well, it's less than six millimeters. It can't be one of those. Well, it could be. So those are the things that you need to think about for melanomas. And when you do the biopsy, you need to make sure that you have a full thickness biopsy so that your pathologist can look to see that what's called the Breslow depth and uh, that really affects the management, your excisional margins, and whether or not you need to do a sentinel lymph node biopsy or not on these folks. So here's some examples of melanomas. And you can kind of see this is what's so-called lenticle maligna or Hutchinson's freckle. They're often sort of flatter lesions that look more, more tannish, that where the part, it looks more tan as opposed to black or raised up. And it looks black on this one in the middle because there was a biopsy done in the center already. But this one, what's important about this case is to show you the, the subclinical extension out from the edge of atypical melanocytes that when you look back here, you don't really even see any color change. And yet this tumor histopathologically really extended out very far. This one really hits you pretty hard. I mean, you look at a little mole like this and you say, these look okay. But this one's clearly bigger. It's notched. It's very dark. This one here I would be worried about too because it's kind of pink. It's different than this one and this one and that one. These are small, friendly-looking ones that, you know, 90% of you in this room have, at least a few of these, okay? Or this one that looks really bad. It's big and black and shiny and has a satellite lesion. It's all the worrisome criteria. Or this freckle, that's, you can see the little ruler down here. That's a, you know, how many five-centimeter freckles do you see? Not too many of those. I mean, there's a few little freckles in, whoops, in the background. And I went forward. I want to do this. That's, but, you know, there's too many. There's too many dark spots. And in here, you do several biopsies. You'd go to this dark area here where there's a transition. You take a biopsy here. And you can do little punch biopsies of this. And make sure you, you know, just don't ignore something like this when you've got the stethoscope on this person's back. Or this one, it's got this hanging chad over to the side here. You know, it's got this little flag sitting out. You know, that's way too big, okay? Or this one that's regressed in the middle. You know, the tumor's way out here. There's been an immune response. This tumor's hung around long enough that the body's recognized it and has built up a response to it and knocked the melanocytes out there, at least temporarily. That's a very worrisome sign clinically. Or this one here on the forearm is way too dark and a little bit notched and very black. Here's another one of those Hutchinson's freckles, so to speak, or lenticle malignant melanomas. It's not just dark brown, but lighter brown, and then white, and even pink. So this whole thing is melanoma with the positive Sharpie sign there again. Or this melanoma that has no pigment at all, where this lady was treated for nail fungus for a year and a half with no response. And why does she have this, and why is her nail destroyed, and why didn't the fungus, so-called, go away? So the point of showing you this case is several fold, which is if you don't understand the diagnosis or you take a therapeutic intervention, rethink it. It seems so self-evident to you guys as M2s probably, but you would be surprised that that does not happen. So, you know, 
a little bit more philosophy with four minutes to go here. Don't, you know, don't be the sort of clinician that takes things, well, it's probably just a little longer with that antifungal. It'll go away. Find out what this bump here. So this lady ended up with a di distal amputation. A lot of the subungual melanomas are pink and don't have color in them. And by the way, I haven't shown you a lot of persons of color at least yet because skin cancer is uncommon in African Americans and in Southeast Asians and so on, but you will see them and they're disproportionately located in acral and mucosal areas because those individuals have less pigment to protect them from ultraviolet radiation in those spots. This is a person with so-called dysplastic nevus syndrome, multiple molds. You can't biopsy all of these spots. You take this, the biggest ones, like this one and this one and this one, and then you do great photos and you do great surveillance on these people. I have a number of people like this, and to live with this and have had a melanoma, these people feel like they're sitting on a ticking time bomb. And so they worry a lot and they hand ring and you worry alongside them. So they check your skin, you check their skin, you have relative check it, and you have photos to compare to, and you end up doing surveillance biopsies on them periodically, and most of them do okay. But it's a nerve-wracking thing to live with. So I'm going to finish with just showing you some things to give you some food for thought. And as you trek, trek out of this place, you'll probably go, hmm, that probably confused me more than reinforced what was there. But if, if what it does is, is it encourages you to look at people's skin and think about it, then hopefully I've won here at least a little bit. Or you know, maybe I didn't win, but played to draw or a little bit better than a draw with you. So this is a seborrheic keratosis. These are a dime a dozen. These little stuck-on things that look like little brains that hang off a lot of people's skin. I call them their say they're from age and wisdom. You look at this and say, well, how do we know it's not a basal cell or a melanoma? It's kind of got this greasy scale and it's smooth. You know, when it's this big, you might not know. And it's different than the benign one here and here. But that's a seborrheic keratosis. It's a benign epidermal tumor from age and wisdom, is what I tell patients, mostly wisdom. Uh, but they're not sun-induced, and we don't know why people get them. They tend to run in families. And another one that's just like the other one, it's, you know, pers this person's chief complaint would be, doctor, I think I have breast cancer. You know, why is this on my nipple? There's no induration here. It's a sort of more sessile and not as pedunculated, but it's the same thing. It's benign epidermal tumor. Or this little nodule here in the back of this person's head that's been picked at and rubbed. But you might not, if you're not sure what it is and it's the only one they have, you might want to do a biopsy, but this is benign, as is this little thing. You'll see a lot of these on elderly people. When you check their backs, when you're doing your physical exam skill stuff, you go up to a ward, my God, you'll see everybody, half the people in America over 30 particularly over 50 or 60, you're going to have these, all, and sometimes they have a little stalk on them. And in an African-American person, all of these little brown spots here, they're also seborrheic keratoses. They're called dermatosis papulosis nigra. They're completely benign and a very common finding. If you look at your classmates that are of color, you'll see these in them. But each of those four people that I've shown you, they have benign things, or these, another image of DPNs. They're all little seborrheic keratoses, and they're benign. And these are the actinic keratoses that I talked about with that scale, the solar keratoses. And you worry about these progressing to squamous cell carcinoma, but also to basal cell carcinoma. And we end up treating people like this with freezing or with topical chemicals or chemical peels to try to remove the dysplastic cell lines and get, try to get them to re-epithelialize with healthy clones next door. Or this person that ends up having just eczema, that's that light scale and it's sort of shiny. I showed you some like this without the superficial you know, could this be a superficial basal cell carcinoma? Maybe, but it's just eczema, dry skin. Or this person that's got bad seborrhea all over her face, and you say, well, they look like those little scaly precancers, but this is just seborrheic dermatitis on this person's face. Or this, which is a true wart. You know, I probably scared, you're probably going to walk out and look at the soles of your feet and your hands, and oh my God, I got Veruca squamous cell carcinoma on my hands, and I got to get my warts treated. But this is just a run of the mill wart. 
or this little seed wart in this little girl's ear, or this mole that's a little bit darker. You might say, wow, it's a little darker than when I sort of looked on my own skin or whatever. Couldn't it be a melanoma? Yeah, it could be, but this one turns out to be benign. But, you know, would I biopsy something like this if it looked this dark? I probably would, but this one turned out not to be a melanoma. Nor this one. That you say, but wait a minute, wait, it's notched and it's got this thing and it's lost its color and it's got all those rules and it's still benign? Mm -hmm. So there you go. <laughs> or this, which is a traumatized angioma, those little red things that people that are middle-aged get. I don't know if you've seen them. I mean, you guys aren't old enough to have them, but you know, lots of people get cherry angiomas and they get traumatized or picked at and it hemorrhages into it. It looks black, looks horrible. This thing is just a little blood vessel thing. This is a little what's called a pyogenic granuloma, just from a minor injury and just heaped up granulation tissue and blood vessels. It's normal. Or this little cherry angioma here. So this is my last slide. It's 10, 20, 11, 20, one and a half. So I'll finish with this 30 seconds. So prevention, you know, and we've talked a lot about diagnosis, but people should wear protective clothing. There's actually a couple companies out there like Salumbra and Sun Precautions and a few that make really nice looking clothing, particularly for very high risk people that hold up in the wash and have a tight weave and are nice. It's, you know, if you don't want to rub stuff on your skin like, you know, chemical sun blockers, try to stay out of the sun. You know, it's unrealistic. You guys will find with your patients again, you know, you'll be idealistic at the beginning and don't lose your idealism. But make sure you understand that when you tell people to follow your instructions, they're still human beings and they're not always going to do it. If you tell people to hibernate in caves and never go out in the sun because they've had three skin cancers, it ain't going to happen. So that people have to live a little bit. And you, have to, you have to horse trade with them some. Tell them to be smart about going out. They can still go fish. They can still do their job, whatever. Try to wear a hat. Try to wear sunscreen. Use sun blockers with an SPF, sun protection factor 15 or higher, that are broad spectrum in blocks A and B. Please don't do the tanning bed thing. Don't go yourselves out for spring break in March and get so-called protective tan that really won't protect you. That just is a sign of skin injury. My little mini lecture now that I get late in my 40s and sort of, yeah, he's wagging his finger at us. And check your skin once a month like I told you. Uh, tell your patients to do it. It's no different than seat belts or cholesterol or anything else. And then I put a little key for the photo slides for the 60 of you that didn't show up to, ah, it's a pretty good turnout today, actually. You know, for people that didn't come and are going through the note service or don't hear my voice on tape, it's like, well, what were those, you know, I, I understand topic by topic, he showed the melanomas, but what were those things at the end that he didn't label? Well, this is the slide key for that. That's it. Thanks for having me.